You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. So today, before uh, Dave comes up, I want to share something with you real quick, kind of set the, 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 the tone for where we're going here today. Uh, you know, when we think about difficulty in life, when we think about how we walk through life, can we, can we be honest for a minute? We have this default setting as human beings that when difficult things, painful things, unexpected things happen, that God is somehow absent or like delinquent in his actions. I, I, I've been there plenty of times when things kind of unravel in our lives we assume God must be absent. God isn't at work. Um, our assumption is usually if everything goes as expected, those are the moments that God is actually present and at work. Uh, but, but I want to present kind of a little bit of a different idea before we dive into this uh, interview with Dave and Jan Dravecki today. I want to propose this kind of different concept, that God is always at the center of the unexpected and the unplanned. God is always at the center of the unexpected and unplanned. Now we have this fear that gets realized when something unexpected happens. It's the fear we'll all be left on our own and not know how to move forward in these confusing, uncertain moments. And while this is a common, normal human reaction, just because it's common doesn't mean it's a good reaction. Like just because something is normal, common, or we like it doesn't mean it's the right thing. Like for example, I love eating Little Debbie snacks. Uh, you know, banana twins, I think they're the healthiest. They're fruit. Um, I mean, what, if I eat 10 banana twins, I've got a lot of potassium somewhere in there. Um, but just because I like them and it's easy doesn't mean it's the right thing. Like, if I eat those too much, you know, I, my lifespan gets shorter uh, as we go, right? Now, we had talked about this last week, if you were with us for Easter, this, this idea that, that's true in unexpected moments of life, that God uses unlikely people to do unlikely things in unlikely moments. That God can often do more in your life and through your life in the lowest, worst, most unexpected moments. This is how James could write, the author of, of the book of James, could write one of the worst, most painful, confusing verses in scripture. It's in James chapter one, verse two. It says this, consider it pure joy. Can you say pure joy? Pure joy, like not just joy, pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like if I, if I could look at James when he wrote that, my eyes would be rolling. I would be like, seriously, what is your deal? This is, he writes this not because we enjoy the painful, unexpected moments of life, but because we know that God is never taken by surprise and is at work even when we're surprised and when we're overwhelmed. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, 28, in his book to the Romans, uh, his letter to the Roman people. Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And, and today, I don't wanna just share these thoughts with you uh, or point to scripture, and that's good and all, but we have this real life story to share with you today that illustrates what we're talking about. And uh, we just saw the video, but it's a story uh, that I read about when I was a kid. My parents got me his, uh, Dave Dravecki's book, Come Back, and I remember reading that cover to cover and just being amazed at what took place. And then he had a follow-up book, When You Can't Come Back. And uh, uh, Dave has been a, a childhood hero of mine that I still uh, so in awe that I get to meet him in person. But uh, 
it's, it's a story of an athlete excelling at the top of his sport only to find himself crashing to the ground, not because of something he had done, but ultimately because of circumstances that, that took place to him. And maybe you uh, in your life can relate to a lot of his story. So uh, this morning, can you give a warm Calvary welcome as we welcome to the platform uh, Dave and Jan Dravecki. So good to have you guys here. You got it on? He's got I'll get the clip. It. They left mine without the clip. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry. By the way, you got the color combo right? I know. Wrong However, team. I'm in the American uh, League here, yeah, Na- National League. I know. We have a little bit of an issue here, Mr. <laughs> before, we, uh, before we dive in some questions, I, I just, this is just, you know, baseball questions real quick. Um, first of all, um, what was it like? I know right after your injury, uh, you were still part of the team, the team that played in the World Series where the earthquake happened between the athletics and the giants. That was such a crazy time. 1989, middle of a game, gets game. Like, that, that's a historic. What was it like uh, being in that, in that moment? For me... Oh, hold on a second. Jason's going to fix something in your microphone. It. What's wrong? Turn it on. He's going to turn it on. Oh, wait a minute. It's, 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 well, you're not going into my pocket. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There's the clip right there. There it is. I can tell Dave to turn off the mute. There's the clip, honey. Oh, there's the clip. Oh, Forgive me, everybody. I was calling out. Jan, your good wife. Yes. <laughs> calling out people. There we oh. go. There we go. <laughs> That's awesome. Clip it while we're here. Please. Thank you, Ron. Yeah. Now we're all Oh my gosh, I did so much better with the little kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, they loved it. They loved it. I had a blast with them. Maybe because I still have that in me. That's good. That's good. That's good. So what was it like in that, that, that game? I mean, being there, uh, you're still on the team. I yeah, you know. A weird time. I was in the clubhouse um, because at that point I had already broken my arm. Yeah. And and so as a result of that, I was sitting in the clubhouse for the with second time. For the second time. Second I, time yeah. I've broken my arm for the second time. We don't like to talk about that. And I, she's always dealing in details and That's good. She's so, a good wife, yeah. Yeah, she's a really good wife. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> and I wasn't thinking about that because the reality is you are a good wife. You're a wonderful wife. You're better than good. Um, <laughs> this is starting off really well, isn't it? <laughs> Will we ever get to the Jesus part? <laughs> so uh, Bob Nepper looks at me and he, and he says, do you hear that? I said, what? And all of a sudden he goes, let's get out of here. And it sounded like a freight train was coming through the doors of the clubhouse. And he and I just sprinted out to the parking lot. It just so happened that Mike Moore, who beat us twice in that World Series, was sprinting too as well. He's a lot bigger and a lot quicker than I am because his legs are much longer. And I actually beat him out there. Nice work. And and so we got out there and and, and it was, we were trying to figure out, was there damage? Because we all knew it was an earthquake. In the Bay Area, that's a common... Yes. And, uh, And then... You know, the first thing that you think about is your wife, 
um, your parents, uh, all the guests that you had there for the World Series, and then it goes to the kids, and the kids were being, uh, they were back at the apartment with a babysitter, and they were closer to the epicenter, so we were wondering, oh my gosh, what's going on there? And, and so needless to say, it was, um, it was a pretty scary time. Yeah, it really I'm was. Sure. Yeah. Such a uh, historic moment that I know I'm yeah. sure you guys will never forget. Just getting around the Bay Area with everything collapsing yeah. must have been so frightening. Yeah, a 20-minute drive to Foster City ended up being two and a half hours. Yeah. Jan, what was it like for you, Jan, you know, not well, being... Hold the mic up. So oh, there you go. I was more concerned about my children. Um, we had rushed out from underneath the overhang just in case it collapsed. And... Um, and it just took us a long time to get to our kids. This is before cell phones. Yeah. So we couldn't, um, we weren't able to call and um, check on them. Yeah. And the whole city was, the electricity was out. So wow. we were, it was black driving down the 101 to our home. But there, with a little pool of light, was uh, Foster City, where we lived. And they never lost their electricity. No way. But actually, our kids were in the pool, and the pool was sloshing so severely um, that our neighbor had to jump in and save wow. his children and mine. Wow, that's crazy. Ours. That whole year must have been really, that must have been a crazy year because, <laughs> you know, you had your accident everything earlier that, just a few months before. Yeah. And then that, like, 1989 was like the year you'll never forget. Well, I, I remember specifically, it didn't happen to me directly, but it happened to Jan. Um, uh, she, my mother looked at her and said, uh, so where is your God now? Hmm. And I think it was in the midst of all the turmoil of, you know, me breaking my arm and then breaking it for the second time, and then the culmination of all the things that were going on. And, and, and that's a very um, poignant question. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I remember actually being asked, where is your God now? Yeah. By a reporter after yeah. I had broken my arm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was, it was probably the most appropriate question to ask. Yeah, yeah. Where is God? You, you're giving him praise on the mountaintop. Where is he in the valley? Yeah. To your introduction. God's part in your life wasn't something that you found through the process. Like, you were, you were believers before any of that ever happened. This wasn't like um, kind of the... Uh, some would say, you know, the, the uh, uh, death row salvation, like where everything's kind of falling apart. And now, no, you, you had had faith leading into that, and it kind of sustained you through that. And I want to dive into that in a minute. Uh, last question, just baseball related. Uh, who is the best player you ever struck out? Who is the scariest person to ever pitch against? I, I think the best player, the best hitter I ever faced was Tony Gwynn, but I never struck him out. He's a tough one to strike out. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was, he, he was three for four off of me. I, it was very yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was a teammate. Yeah, because Tony was a teammate of yeah. mine yeah. before I was in San Francisco. Yeah. But I would have to say, to answer both questions, I would have to say Barry Bonds. Yeah. yeah. You know, I own Barry. Yeah. <laughs> don't, whatever you do, if you see him, don't say that. Because we're good friends to this day, and I don't, I don't want him to kind of yeah. think I walk around with my, you know, chest out going, I own Barry Bonds, <laughs> even though I own Barry Bonds. <laughs> you know, 
Um, that's pretty I think good. he hit 111 off me. So, that's yes, pretty good. Way to go, Dave. That's pretty good. Was the one a home run? No. Then there you go. No, You're he's set. never hit a home run off me. The home run hitter of all time. And, and, yeah. uh, and actually, Barry's a, a, a wonderful young man. Yeah. And I've gotten to know him post-career. Cool. It's really interesting, Nick, that um, a lot of the players that I played ball with that I didn't spend much time with or get to know, as you get older, you know, we're all a part of this wonderful organization called the Giants that brings us back a lot. Yeah. And so we get to know each other a little bit better. And it's cool. incredible how those relationships develop post-career. Who's been one of your closest post-career friends from uh, Major League Baseball? Career and post-career is Atlee Hamaker. He's my best friend. Yeah, that's awesome. In baseball. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. And in a huge encouragement um, to the point that, you know, we can't do this life alone. Yeah. He was there in the darkest times for me. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. For you, at what age did you start playing baseball? Like, how did you kind of journey toward the major leagues? Not everyone gets to play in the major league. That's uh, Yeah, you know, I started playing catch when I was seven and, uh, and then played minor leagues, which was the step right before Little League Baseball, mm -hmm. and then went into Little League. So seven, eight years of age, that's when I started and, and just loved all sports. I mean, yeah. I played football. I played, you know, um, basketball. I ran track. Um, you know, I, I loved being active in sports, period. That's cool. Yeah. Now, uh, how, did, how, how did the journey toward the major leagues happen? Was it something that happened quickly? Was it something, you know, was no. difficult? Kind of no. just fell um, into? No, really interesting. And I apologize for putting my back towards you guys. Um, I, think the, I think the thing that uh, was, was really cool for me was, um, you know, nobody thought I was good enough to play. Yeah. Uh, I graduated from high school, and my coach said, you've got an opportunity to play at the next level. And I said, wow, that is really cool. There was only one problem. There wasn't one university in the entire country that recruited me to play for them. And so I ended up being a walk-on at Youngstown State University. Um, Which and, is where you grew up. You guys both and that's grew up. where we both grew yeah. up. We were high school sweethearts. And so um, I think what was really cool was, you know, I had a chance at, to play at YSU, and Ended up playing there for four years and uh, pitched one good game in front of two scouts, one for the Dodgers, one for the Pirates. Got invited to a pre-draft tryout at Three Rivers Stadium before PNC. Oh, my gosh, PNC is so much better than Three yeah. Rivers. <laughs> I mean, that was just a concrete mass with walls and the playing surface. Yeah. I mean, it was like a Super Bowl when you pitched there. I had a nasty sinker, and all I did was hit ground balls for base hits. Um, so right. that was a really tough place to play. But I went there for a pre-draft tryout, threw one inning, nine pitches, struck out two, gave up a hit to a teammate of mine from Youngstown State, and went to Murray Cook, the farm director, after that. And I said, so what do I do now? And he said, well, go home and sit by the phone. And if the phone rings and somebody says you've been drafted by this organization, then congratulations. If not, get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so grateful that I have never had a real job <laughs> because I absolutely love everything that I've done. That's so cool. And do. Jan, what about for you? Uh, you know, Dave, of course, gets the spotlight as the major league player, former pro baseball player. What's it like being married to a major league baseball player? <laughs> <laughs> Can I leave the room? We don't have enough time. Um, um, the truth is that, um, you know, Dave and I started dating when we were 16, and I was completely bored by baseball. 
I, I really didn't like yeah. it. It was so boring for me that I, he threw a no-hitter one time and I didn't even know because I was busy reading a book in the stands. <laughs> I mean, I just... She I did just, not marry me because I was going to be a baseball no. player. And when, and when we became engaged and then he was drafted, I was so distraught because, you know, I loved growing up outside of Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah. I loved my parents. I didn't want to leave. Yeah. And I knew the life of baseball was going to be a lot of change. And yeah. I didn't want that. And, I, you know, I wanted to marry in Youngstown, Ohio. I wanted to have my children in Youngstown, Ohio. And um, I just, you know, I never wanted the way of baseball life. And then when he was drafted, I thought, oh my goodness. I'm engaged to a man who wants to play a little boy's game the rest of his life. <laughs> and I mean, I was just, de I mean, I was devastated. Yeah. But I had a wonderful mother who said, you need to go. You need to go. Yeah. So, um, so off I went. And through the minors, I would have to say our baseball experience, the minor leagues, were um, much more fruitful yeah. during that time, yeah. and yeah. we were closer. We were like family, yeah. you know, with the other teammates yeah. and their wives, and we would prepare meals together That's because cool. we couldn't afford anything. Yeah. So, um, and then life in the major leagues, though, was good, but the fact of the matter is when you're a major league baseball wife, you're also a single mother yeah. Yeah. most of the time. Because they're traveling so much. Yes. I mean, it's a long season. It's a long season. Yeah a lot of games yeah and then when they are home they're not really yeah. home yeah yeah that's hard mm -hmm. and you raised your kids in California yes not in Ohio which is a little bit different yeah <laughs> well actually back, uh, back yeah. then it, back then it wasn't so bad yeah uh. it, the weather was different the weather's well, different I guess I guess I wasn't around that much, so. <laughs> why do you I think retract I... that last statement <laughs> why do you think I wanted to go home that was why Yes. <laughs> it was a different, different, different place. Yes, it yeah. was very different. Yeah. And I always wanted to go home. Yeah, yeah. Well, this week you get to. Yes. That's good. Yeah, you get to go. yeah which has been great. It's, it's going to be great. Uh, share with us, Dave, kind of, we saw the video and we've heard the story, but what, what kind of led up to uh, everything that transpired in 1988, 1989? Can I share that, that story? Yeah, you know, it was, I, I mean, I was in a season of life. I, I share often when I travel and speak, that there's three components to our stories, all of our stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, 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 and the good part of, of my story was seeing this dream become a reality. Yeah. You know, when you're told you're now going to be a part of the major league team in San Diego, and then from there you progress and, and you actually succeed at this level. And I wasn't the best pitcher, but um, I was the best version of myself, thanks to the encouragement of my wife. Um, and so when I went out there and performed to see all those things happen and then to get traded from a last place team to a first place team in the San Francisco Giants was really cool. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about an organization with a storied history. I mean, I got to spend time with Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Gaylord Perry in the clubhouse in spring Amazing. training. During the season, they'd come in every day. And so being able to hang around those kind of guys was just huge as a Giant. Um, you know, I was traded on the 4th of July from San Diego. Uh, there's some connection there with freedom. 
uh, being on a last place team, going yeah. to a first place team, which was really cool. Second half, I pitched my best baseball. Went into the postseason that year and pitched two best games of my career. Actually threw a two-hit shutout in game two against the Cardinals, and we beat them five to nothing. And then I'm thinking 1988 is going to be my year, and opening day, it's Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium, and it's Dave Dravecki versus Fernando Valenzuela. I mean, you couldn't have painted a better picture, baseball-wise, pitcher against pitcher, mano y mano. And Fernando, at that point in time, I think was probably, the, in my opinion, um, one of the best, if not the best, left-handed pitcher uh, yeah. of his day. And so um, we win that game 5-1. to one. More important than my pitching, and I threw a complete game, was I hit a double off of Fernando. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, especially with the way the game has changed today, they just took away pitchers being able to hit. It's no longer real baseball. <laughs> and managers don't manage anymore. Um, uh, so, you know, there I was thinking this is going to be my year. And by the end of um, 1988, Jan and I are in an, in an examining room waiting for the results of an MRI. Crazy. And uh, I'll never forget, um, I'll never forget, Nick. We were sitting in the examining room. The doctors came down the hall stopped in front of the door. The door was open slightly. The films went up underneath the lights before they came in to confirm what they were going to say. And that was the first time we heard the word cancer. They hadn't shared it yet face to face. We were shocked. And I looked at her and I said, babe, we need to pray. That's all I could think about doing. And I don't wax eloquently when I pray. So I just said a very simple prayer and it was something like this. God, whatever it is we're about to face, Please give us the strength to endure it. That's all I ask. Give us the strength to endure. They walked in and they confirmed that in fact it was cancer. At that point, I kind of had an outer body experience. And I started thinking about my life looking forward. And now you're hearing the word cancer. Immediately, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is in the late 80s. This is going to take my life. You know, this is a death sentence. I'm 32 years old and I'm face to face with my own mortality. And so as a result of that, I go off into this thought process while we're still sitting there and the first thing that comes to my mind is, if I die, who's gonna marry my wife? <laughs> I mean, that's the normal place for me to go. That's human, you know? You spoke of that, the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the aspect of Christ's humanity. Um, and so, you know, I think at that point, I was like, oh my gosh, and will this, will this person who marries her, will he love her and my children as much as I do? But then what came into my mind was, oh my gosh, I know who I am. Will he love them more than I do? Wow. And that was a critical moment in my story where I came face to face yeah. with the reality of Dave big deal looking in the mirror so how, really how did tough. you how, from that point you everyone said like coming back from that's really difficult if at all how did you do that in 10 months um i when i talk about a miracle you know um like i, I think when we think about miracles it's someone being raised from the dead yeah um lazarus but you know lazarus died he eventually still had to die yeah, right yep and the real miracle about Jesus that nobody can even match is that he died, but he came back. Yeah. 
And now he's still alive. Yeah. That's what's really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is still alive. And so in that moment, man, I just lost my thought. That's all right. Have you guys ever experienced that before, by the way? <laughs> I, had, I got one of those moments. How'd you make it through that 10, 10, week, 10 months, uh, I mean? I think the real miracle, the real miracle, you thank you. Yeah, back on track. The real miracle um, is Dr. George Mush, Mushler. The real miracle is uh, Claire Huxtable. <laughs> Not the Claire Huxtable on the Cosby show, but... This gal was one of my nurses that looked just like Claire. And my roommate Joe and I loved Claire because Claire stashed Italian ice in the freezer. <laughs> and we would be ringing the bell. And she'd nice. come in, you guys want your Italian ice now? Yep. Then we'd be sitting watching the World Series because my surgery was around the World yeah. Series postseason yeah. time. And Joe goes, Dave. Look over in the top drawer in our little nightstand between our beds, and I look, and there's all these Lipton um, chicken noodle packages. He goes, I'm going to ring Claire. We need a couple of hot cups of water. And so, <laughs> so I ring, and she come running in, man, and she goes, what do you guys want now? We, we want to make a chicken noodle soup. She goes, okay, I'll be right back with the hot water. And so, I mean, it was those kinds That's of awesome. things that ultimately got me in 10 months from the nurses and the doctors to the therapist that started with me. When I couldn't even move my arm, he started moving it to the trainers and the therapist in San Francisco, the encouragement of my teammates, the encouragement of the organization, the encouragement of my wife and kids, my family, all the people that God brought into my life that's the miracle story yeah. that got me to the mound that day. That's so that's incredible. how it happened. That's incredible. That's how it happened. And it was a lot of hard work. And also, you said you couldn't quit. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in my DNA. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you had to try. I had to try. I couldn't walk away wondering for the rest of my life if I could have done it. Yeah. Could have, should have, would have, kills you. But then, and then five days later, everything changes again. Yeah. So, Jan, you... you you know, walked into reluctantly a, a life that you didn't really long for or dream for. <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of getting settled and figuring it out. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it's done. It, how, how do you process that as a wife and a mother? mother? Well, um, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's will that prevails. Yeah. So I had come to learn that in the life of baseball, yeah. that it was true that every place that um, God put us, there was purpose in it. Yeah, so and when, I have to tell you honestly, when Dave fell from the mound, I was listening on the radio because it wasn't televised in San Francisco at that time. And um, once I knew he was okay and he was on his way to the hospital, um, I, I can't deny that I had an excitement in my heart because I was like, oh, my goodness, the doctors told him he would never pitch again. The doctors told him he would never be able to raise his arm above his head again. Yeah. And here he was five days ago on the mound in Candlestick Park, and, and there was all this praise, and he was able to give his testimony, and we just knew it was God was behind yeah. it all. And then five days later, for him to fall, from the mound when he's pitching another shutout, you know, yeah. shutout innings. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I had an excitement. I have to say, oh my goodness, God, what are you going to do? Of course, I had a set of plans at that time that it was, everything was going to get, I mean, it would be roses from from that point on, but um, the complete opposite happened. Yeah, you you have a whole career and and immediately stopped. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything from income to lifestyle to everything you do, it's so abrupt. Yeah, and I think, too, most people think that being a Major League Baseball player, I was loaded financially, mm-hmm. you know, that I had more than enough money and it would be no big deal. But back then, um, we weren't making the million-dollar contracts the way they are today. Yeah. And yeah. so when I retired from the game, um, at the end of my career, there was no um, guaranteed contract after that. I was done. So I had to find a job, but I was still battling cancer. So you're trying to figure out how in the world are you going to put a roof over your head, keep it over your head? How are you going to put food on the table, clothes on your back? What are you going to do? You know, and, and, and the cancer kept coming back. But what was really amazing, Nick, about the, the moment on the ground after I had broken my arm and I was laying there was to Jan's point. In the story, we were both. She was thinking that. I was thinking that. Yeah. When we talked after that, we both said the same thing to each other. It was the most uncanny thing. It was one of those Holy Spirit moments where you knew God was in this, but you had no idea what he was up to. Oswald Chambers writes a devotional where he says, God gives us the vision, and then he takes us into the valley and shapes us into that vision. Wow. And, And we were like, oh my gosh, what is going on? I remember five hours before that game, I was with Bob Nepper, a teammate of mine, and he looked at me and he said, this is after me, you know, doing the comeback and and being on such a high. And he looks at me and he goes, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not the miracle of the comeback that's so important here. It's the miracle of salvation that occurred in your life in 1981 when we were in Amarillo, Texas, and I committed my life to Christ along with Jan. And he said, what God is doing is providing a platform for you through baseball to share his love with those who hurt. That was five hours before I broke my arm. I break my arm, I'm laying on the ground, and all I could hear were Bob Nepper's words. The real miracle is the miracle of salvation that took place on the cross through Christ. And what God is going to do is provide a platform through baseball for you to share his love with those who hurt as a result of that miracle, that miracle that took place in my life, Mm -hmm. the miracle of salvation and the gift of grace. So So it was just amazing. It was an amazing time, but didn't last very long. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When you look back on that that stretch of time, what are the things you guys are thankful for? Mm. I'm thankful for her. Yeah. I'm thankful for... Um, all the support. I learned something very important because I was a very selfish man. You know, baseball revolved around me. Yeah. You know, I was in the spotlights. She lived in the shadows. And, you know, and, and looking back on that period of time, I've said it often. You know, life was all about Dave. It's all about Dave. And so when Dave found himself at the end of himself, if it weren't for the friends that showed up to be Jesus with skin on, I don't know where I'd be today. 
And I would say we call them um, treasures of darkness because the following two years was very dark. Um, at first, Dave suffered really pretty. Um, and, um, but when your pain goes from days to weeks to months to years, the darkness that's inside of us does rise to the surface. And it rose in both of us. For Dave, it was... He couldn't cry. He couldn't mourn all his losses. So he was able to express his pain through anger and sometimes rage. And for me, um, I stuffed everything, so um, which resulted in severe panic attacks and a deep, dark depression. And I would have to say that I felt all alone for the first year and a half. Yeah. through the darkness because I was forbidden to get any kind of help and that I needed to just sacrifice myself at the cross. Yeah. And, um, and so, but it, what's unbelievable is I'm thankful for the prayers of others and how God brought the right people in at the right time to bring us to a point of healing. That's awesome. What were some of the lowest moments in those two years? Anything you feel comfortable sharing or some of the... You know, there were a lot. I would have to say that the lowest was when, right before we met with Dr. Dobson, and you were depressed, I was depressed, you had a staph infection, your arm was actually literally rotting off your body, yeah. and... Um, we were both at the end of ourselves. And normally in our relationship, we would be, one would be strong when the other was weak, but that was a point where we both were, you know, in the wilderness together yeah. and we couldn't help one another. And um, I think that, and I do think that the amazing part about that is it never really affected our marriage. No. I mean, that was, I mean, she had every right to leave because I became verbally abusive to her and the kids. Um, I look back on that period of time and I've learned over the years, um, I spent 12 months in anger management counseling with Gary Oliver, a Christian counselor out of Colorado. And, and I learned a very valuable lesson about anger. Bible speaks um, to some degree about anger and anger can be okay in certain circumstances, but we're not to let our sun go, the sun go down on our anger. Yeah. And there is no excuse for being a verbally abusive to your spouse. Yeah. There is no excuse for that whatsoever. And I'm so grateful for his forgiveness. I'm so grateful for Jan's grace. I'm so grateful for the fact that she told me, even in your ugliest moments, that I knew your heart and she stuck with me. And I'm really grateful that in those ugliest moments, because of Christ's love for me on the cross, that I was loved more than I could comprehend, even in the worst of my moments. That's the power of the grace of yeah. the cross. Yeah. And, uh, and yet it was really hard. It was a very dark time. And, yeah. you know, I would highly encourage you. I mean, I speak as a man, so I speak to men. If you struggle with that issue in your life, um, uh, either get help or stop it. It's, it's, it's just ugly. And it's extremely destructive. And all it does is hurt the one that you love. And uh, I'm... It breaks my heart to think that I've done that. Over but I'm so grateful we're still together. Oh, yeah. Over <laughs> 43 the years. That's amazing. 43 years. So cool. 
over, over the last three years. That's your number, isn't it? Yes. That's my number. What was that? Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Um, Why aren't uh, you wearing it? What? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Nick. I let you down. I'm I mean, sorry. It, I, I feel like I'm in the clubhouse know, when you're I wearing a uniform, you know? Cool and that's that, what yeah. we do. We banter I, in the I clubhouse. Agree. I think it's great. I love it. <laughs> um, over the last two years, pandemic, COVID, everything that's happened, one of the things that's slowly normalizing, I hope, I think it is, in the church at least, is the importance and value of therapy, counseling, mental yeah. health. Mm. And this is something in the church world that, Growing up in the church, uh, I think, is a disservice to people when we have over-spiritualized and minimized the role of getting help, like you said, of finding support and meeting with a counselor, a therapist, and, and working on your mental health. Like, God's not going to just magically fix you, but like that you're willing to work through and dig through that. How did that process work for you, and what was the tipping point to take that step? Because in the late 80s, in the church... Oh. That wasn't a thing. No. And honestly, it wasn't an encouraged thing. It was actually a taboo thing. Yes. Um, like, you don't, you don't do that. You know, it wasn't we don't talk about Bruno's. We don't talk about counseling, right? <laughs> like, that, that, that was the thing. Like, you don't talk about that. If you need counseling, it's hush-hush. Don't say a word. How did you overcome that hurdle and take that step? Because that's such a, like, healing, healing can't start until you kind of dig through the mire and muck. And you, be, and you become aware and, of yes, what's happening yes, to you. Which you don't even realize. Right, right. So Awareness is the first step to transformation. What was the tipping point to kind of say, okay, we're going to get help, we're going to see therapists or counseling? Or... Well, I started reading, at the time, Minerth Meyer clinics were big, and because I couldn't receive any help or encouragement from um, my church, or my husband, um, because, you know, he viewed it, and rightfully so. He was like, I'm the one going through the cancer. Yeah. Why are you depressed? And so um, I reached out and started reading books by Minerth Meyer, and I started to understand and become aware of why I was, that I was depressed and that I needed help. I needed um, counseling and I needed therapy, but the exciting thing was I was praying the whole time that Dave would change his mind, and God led us to, we were on Focus on the Family, on Dr., and we were in California, this is before they moved to Colorado Springs, and um, we went in for an interview, and of course he, he took one look at me, and I weighed probably 90 pounds less than I Way now, way now, and um, you know, skinny and miserable, fat and happy. You know. <laughs> so, um, anyway, he um, took one look at me, and he goes, "What's wrong?" And Dave goes, "Oh, she thinks she's depressed." Is that Dr. James Dobson? Dr. Yeah. James Dobson, yeah. and and he, I was with her. Yeah. And I'm and I'm responding to him. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my gosh." He's like, "Oh." He's, and Dr. Dobson, you know, he just reached out and told Dave. He said, Dave, she's depressed. She's exhausted. She's exhausted everything within her being. And he said, she needs help. She needs to get counseling. And so I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I just got permission from Dr. Dobson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an and, answer to prayer. And I'm, awesome. and I'm thinking... 
Right now, I'd like to punch this guy in the face, but I can't because he's Dr. Dobson. <laughs> so from there, we were able to get in touch with some wonderful counselors, uh, Christian psychologists, and I was put on medication. and um, Vitamin and the, P. Vitamin P. Prozac. <laughs> and then um, it, was six it was six weeks before we found out that Dave um, was to have his ambulance his arm amputated. Wow. So the provision of God was Incredible. just, I mean, I couldn't deny, I mean, I couldn't yeah. have orchestrated yeah. those circumstances myself. For someone maybe who's struggling with that, they, they, they think they might need help or support or therapy or counseling, what would you say to them? They're, they're saying, well, it's not that bad, like I can figure this out, I'll just kind of dig in and push my way through this. What would you say to them? Okay. It, um, Depression is, physio, is a physical ailment. Yeah. It is a chemical imbalance in the brain. Yeah. And it drove, it drove me nuts, and it still does, that people consider if there's anything else wrong with your body, you know, your heart, your stomach, anything caused by stress, yeah. that, um, that it's accepted yeah. and it's, you're not shamed. Yes. Yeah. But if there's something wrong with the brain, the brain, the main organ yeah. of the body, yeah. um, um, then it's suddenly reclassified mm. as, as mental, mental illness, and it takes on a totally different stigma. And I determined that if I ever made it to the other side, that I was going to write about it, I was going to admit it, I was going to not be ashamed of what happened to me, and, um, and you know, it's just been, it's, it's just been a journey since then. And you know, Dave, after he had his amputation, about four months afterwards, he found himself extremely depressed, and he he laid on his bed and just said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea." Mm. So if you have someone, if you are experiencing those those kind of symptoms, then um, I really encourage you to go see your doctor. Yeah. and then have a referral for, for a counselor because you really need both to walk, along, you know, to walk out of that valley of darkness. Yeah. But also, too, I encourage those who are walking alongside not to be judgmental That's good. and understand that so they good. need help and not stop them from doing that. Yeah, so good. Yeah, and I think Christian counseling is very important, too. I think understanding the dynamic of where God's at in our story and helping us to understand who we are in this story in relationship to him. All too often we're driven, quite frankly, by the ways of the world. We're not driven by God in relationship to how we live our life. We're motivated by what the world says success looks like. We're motivated by all these things. So we think we are wired to push and drive and push and drive and push and drive because the goal is to get to this point. When God says, no, I want you to enjoy this journey, and there's a way of life that I have for you. Now, when you enter into that with the right understanding, then you can have healthy margins. I mean, part of the problem in our culture today is there are no margins. So we come home and we're exhausted from work. Well, where do you place those margins so that you have the time to rest so that you can then be all you are supposed to be to your wife and your children. 
you know, understanding the dynamic, and I think Christian counseling helps us to get there because it's from a biblical perspective that we understand how to live life. Um, and, um, and, and, it's, and I think it's just critical, you know, to be honest about that and not be afraid of, number one, the stigma around counseling, and number two, the stigma around medication. Yeah. Because both are there to help us heal in the process and then to establish a way of life, which I like to call the Jesus way. Mm. The way of life is the Jesus way. And he wants us to enjoy this journey as we reflect him in our communities and let people be introduced to the love of God through the love he has for us in our story. And all too often, we miss that. Yeah, We miss that. And quite frankly, I think it's too simple. I think it's too simple, Nick. Yeah. You know, and, and yet at the same time, you know, we've got to go through You've got to go through it in order to understand it. Right. We can sit here and tell you all these things until we're blue in the face. But until you see it in yourself and for yourself, you're not going to do a thing about it. Right, right. And so we just trust that someone's encouraged as a result of that. In the last two years, everyone has faced unexpected moments. Like we've all... Things have happened that we could have never imagined would ever happen. The world shut down. I mean, it's still hard to grasp that. What have you guys learned that we could all learn from about unexpected moments, unplanned moments? Our kids were befuddled that we weren't, you know, upset by everything that was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think in the unexpected moments, what we've learned to do is lean into Jesus more. What we've learned to do is to, and I, I will tell you, I was affected by the last two years. You bet. I had extreme anxiety. Um, and so, you know what I did? I just took away all the stuff that gave me anxiety. I mean, it's not like we're not aware of what's going on. It's got, we got 24-7 news. So I removed the anxiety from my, my story. And one of the ways in which I did that, and I don't know if this is an appropriate thing to do, but I watched Last Man Standing with Tim Allen. <laughs> I mean, that dude makes me laugh. And so, you know, I just thought it was one of those. And, but at the, at the same time, the other thing that has happened in our story, which has been so helpful in the midst of this, but in a way of life period, is I was challenged 27 years ago to read through the Bible in a year. Yeah. Seemed like this thing that was just so big I would never be able to do it and I had tried it many times and failed six years ago I finally took up the challenge from my dear friend who's been doing it for 27 years and as I engaged with God at that level it is amazing what has happened in my life yeah I have spent more time focused on him and his ways Good. The other aspect of this is I've started writing and journaling. I'm not a journaler, but I write my thoughts now. And it feels so good to, to incorporate these disciplines that we all see sometimes as things we have to do instead of realizing there's one way I know I can engage with God. I can hear him speak to me through his word. Yeah. Then I can talk to him. Yeah. And then I can have fellowship with people like so you. Good. And those are things that I have engaged in more to help me stay away from the draw of the world that wants me to get involved in the cancel culture, yeah. the woke movement, yeah. you know, 
The vaccine's right. The va unvaccinated, unvaccinated caused the problem. Vaccine people are all good. You know, we've got all these crazy ideas out there. God doesn't want us to be focused in on any of that. He wants us focused on him. Yeah. Yeah. And as we focus on him, we can, in being confronted by these things, be able to live his way yeah. and reflect him. I don't want to push people away from Jesus. I want people to be drawn to Jesus. You got, you got so, you know, good. so I think that's part of what it is. Thank you guys so much for being just real and honest and raw with us today. Like mm -hmm. This is just so good for us over these last two years. Everything that, that our culture has walked through it's encouraging to hear people uh, a few years ago walk through pain that was inconceivable, not just physically, but emotionally, and that God used your brokenness hmm. and the healing you found to help us find healing in our own brokenness. I think the last two years have revealed a lot of brokenness in each and every one of us in society, and my hope is that your story, uh, how God in unlikely moments brought hope one last thing. Yeah. I, I was sharing with Carmen um, when we were with the kids. There's a powerful ver verse that I would like to close with that Jan and I, um, uh, not 2 Corinthians. Um, actually, there's two verses. Yeah. And we'll close with the second verse, our verse. But it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not by works so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he, God, prepared in advance for us to do. In the New Living Translation, the word workmanship is translated masterpiece. Mm. For we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he, God, prepared in advance for us to do. Ladies and gentlemen, when was the last time you looked in the mirror and thought of yourself as his masterpiece? And in the process of life, Jan has reminded me, yes, Dave, you are his masterpiece, but you are also becoming his masterpiece. Yes. <laughs> because this, I'm a work in process, but yeah. this thing about being a masterpiece is so overwhelming because I never saw myself in that light. I never saw myself, I saw myself as a sinner who got saved, not once I was saved, a saint who sins. Yeah. And so that verse is powerful for me. And the last verse, which is our verse of hope, is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, and we love sharing it together. Therefore, Therefore we, we do, do not lose heart. heart. Though, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's our hope. That's why Jesus did what he did. That's so good. Thank you. And uh, before we, we close today, I don't want to just rush, uh, you know, wrap things up and be done. Um, I love what you said there, Dave, that we are a workmanship. We are a work in progress. All of us are. And I don't know what kind of work you've brought into this place, meaning what baggage, issues, struggles, things that you're working through. Um, but I do know this, that God isn't surprised by it. 
and it isn't overwhelming to him as it might be in the same way to you. And there's something powerful about the act of surrender, being able to mm. say to God, God, I have this that is just overwhelming and I don't know the way out, but I want to trust you with it. And the first step in that process is not the circumstances, but your life. Say, God, I want to trust you with my, my whole life, my being, all that I am, my dreams, my aspirations, my fears and my worries, my anxieties. I want to give you my, my life. And to say, God, I want to live for you. And you might say, well, there's all these reasons why God would not welcome me. There's all these reasons why that's not even possible. Like God uh, couldn't possibly care about me, love me, or, or even be willing to welcome me because I have all of these issues, my family, my past, my mistakes, all the things. And yet the God that we are talking about is a God that actually welcomes you with open arms and says, I know you're a work in progress. In fact, I'm working on you and I made you and I created you. And I have so much in store for you if you're willing to let me take the reins and to lead you well. And before we wrap up, I don't want to just say, hey, let's wrap up and go. But what if we could individually make a decision to say, you know what? I want to surrender myself to God, not to be religious or to join a church or any of that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. But I want to surrender my life to God to let him transform me into that masterpiece, Ooh. to let him do the work on me that needs to be done. Not that I'm trying to figure it out myself, because you can try, you can try the rest of your life and you'll only get so far, but with the one who made you, your creator, the one who shaped you and formed you in your mother's womb, that knows you from the beginning to the end, knows the best and the worst about you, and still loves you, and still is willing to forgive you and to heal you and to restore you and redeem you and, and, and to bring good, as, as he did with Dave and Jan, to bring good even out of the most painful, worst moments of your life. That's the God we're talking about. Not that it's easy and everything magically gets better, but that you find purpose in the midst of all the pain and the difficulty. And today, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, I, I want you to just process in your own mind, whether you're here in person or online, is there a decision I need to make? Is there a way that I need to surrender my life to Christ? Do I need to experience his forgiveness? I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm just saying changing a way of life, a direction, and a focus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, I thank you for today and what you're doing. And God, I pray in these moments that you would just speak to people's hearts and their minds. Guys, we just reflect on our own lives and sometimes the mess that we found ourselves in Lord, maybe it's because of our own doing. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just circumstances that have happened to us. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves in these messes and in these moments where we don't know the way out. Things are overwhelming. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just work on people's hearts and minds. Lord, to be able to say, God, I surrender my life to you. Lord, I accept your forgiveness. Let you do your redemptive work in my heart, in my life, in my past. As you're continuing to pray this morning, if you're here or you're in person or, or you're online and you say, Nick, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to not just be religious or become part of some church. That's not what it's about. But I want to begin this journey of living my life with purpose for a reason. Allowing God to be that workman that, that shapes me and, and takes the mess and the baggage and, and works the kinks out of it and, and makes it all that he intended it to be. If that's you this morning, I'm gonna count to three. 
Not, not because of some magic formula, but just to, to give you an opportunity to make that, that decision. And on three, if that's you, I just want you to reach your hand toward heaven to say, God, that's me. I wanna, I wanna surrender my life to you today. I wanna begin living for your purposes today. I wanna experience your forgiveness and redemption in my past. Not let those labels and the baggage hang over my head anymore. But I'm gonna believe what you say about me and what you long for me to be. If that's you this morning, the count of three, one, two, three. If you could just reach your hand toward heaven this morning, amen. Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else today? Amen. Amen. You can put your hands down. And for those watching online or here in person, I'm gonna pray a prayer. And I'm just gonna ask everyone, all of us, whether you raised your hand or not, to pray this prayer with me. It's not the magic prayer. There's nothing super spiritual about it. All prayer is is conversation with God. And my hope is that this is the first of many conversations you have with God as you share the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life with him. And, uh, and, and, and say these words not as just empty words you're reciting. But say these from your heart. You're talking to God, the creator of your very being. Would you all pray this prayer with me together? Dear God, thank you for loving me with all of my junk, with all the mess, with my past, everything that I embodied. I now surrender it to you. I give you my life. I accept your forgiveness, your promises, and your redemption. Help me change the way I see myself, how I see my future. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 